Podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. First off, I should probably apologise because the eagle-eyed or eagle-eared among you will have noticed that at the end of the third Bob Olsen episode, I'm pretty sure I lined up the next episode as being my Ron Ryan interview, and obviously that wasn't the case. Uh, I decided to go with Gerald Chevin instead. Um because the Ron Ryan conversation needs a bit of editing and the uh, Gerald Chevin interview was all in one. So I decided to go with that one instead. Um, you will also notice some minute changes to the way that the podcast is. Nothing particularly major, um, but it's the sort of thing that I know uh, listeners are sensitive to. So I thought I'd uh, just sort of let you know about them. Mainly, I'm not saying welcome to a number, and that's because, uh, essentially, I'm getting too busy at the studio, and I've got so much on that I have hired an assistant to take care of the podcast editing for me, um, which means that uh, I won't um, have necessarily, won't release things in the order that I recorded them anymore, um, and I'm not sure what will be going out in what order. Uh so yeah, that sort of explains that. Nothing else should really change, to be honest with you. I'm still going to be doing the intros and the outros exactly like this. I'm obviously conducting the interviews. Um, I should also say before we dig into this conversation, um, and I hope that you're enjoying it, by the way. I love speaking to Gerald. Uh, I have a third part of this, and I'm going to release it as a special guest episode, uh, maybe in a, a couple of months' time. Because there's a few repeated stories and I thought, but there's a few sort of golden nuggets in there too. And I thought that would be interesting to um, for you to all hear. Um, anyway, the other thing that I am going to say is that if you have any guest suggestions for me, Gerald Chevin was a guest suggestion by somebody. Um, if you have any suggestions, please do get in touch with me at joeatallyouneedisdrums.com. That's my email address. And I genuinely do try and get everybody on who... Um, you suggest <laughs> there's not really anyone I haven't contacted and whether I'm able to get them or not is a different question a different story but yeah I will definitely take on board any suggestions that you have uh, okay and also don't forget that if you'd like to support the podcast you can do that by either making a donation on my website or you can do uh, you can buy a mug from the shop on my website too a lovely enamel mug which i am currently brewing a coffee for inside of oh blooming heck what i'm i've gone too far with this to to edit any stupid sentences out um and my stream of consciousness is probably annoying you so anyway we'll get into this second part of the conversation with gerald chevin i hope you all enjoy it i will see you at the end I, I was lucky enough um, to work with a producer who um, went on to be, well, he, he became very popular in terms of what he did. I don't know, again, you've ever heard of a guy called Denny Cordell? Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, Denny and I got on very, very well. Now, Denny was from Argentina. Um, not that that makes any difference, but um, he had an ear for, you know, knowing what was going to be successful or not. Because at the end of the day, you know, you can be aesthetic and artistic and stuff like that, but, you know, the money pays the bills, not how much you appreciate the music, because, mm. you know, you've got to earn money to to, 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 to to indulge yourself. Anyway, he said to me one day, we, we were working on something or other, and he said to me, come to Birmingham with me and come and listen to this, this group. 
and they were called groups in those days and not bands. <laughs> so, all right, so we toddled off and we go to a place in Birmingham called the Cedar Club and there was a big queue of people outside, but because we were, I don't know, in inverted commas, VIPs, we just went straight in and we were shown like the best place to be. And this group comes out and starts playing and he was right, they blew me away. And it was called The Move. Yes. And Roy Wood, uh, Bev, Bev and Carl Wayne, they were all incredible musicians. So the next week they came to London and we recorded their first hit record, which was called Night of Fear, which was, um, you know, quite a clever thing. And that, that got to number one, I believe. And I just became very friendly with them all because, you know, when you work with people for hours and hours on end, Right, you, you you always develop some kind of affinity, and especially in a closed control room, you know, where um, you know you're, you're literally on top of each other for for for, for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then Roy Roy said to me, he's got another friend who um, is quite a good musician, and he's in a group, and he's in Birmingham. Why don't you go to Birmingham and see them? So I turned off to Birmingham again, and I saw a guy called Jeff Lynn, uh, <laughs> his group. And got them into the studio and um, worked with worked with them. Unfortunately, uh, they were called the Idle Race, but they never ever made it. Um, even though Jeff's compositions were just incredible, and one day I was on the phone to um, um, a guy called Jeff Emmerich, who was the Beatles sound engineer. Absolutely. And I said to Jeff, "Look, well, I'm, I'm going to come down. Then I'm going to come down on Thursday." and watch your session, you know, which is something that we all did. And Jeff could overhear me. So I said, okay, I'll see you on Thursday then. Bye. And so Jeff said to me, can I come? I said, no, 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 it's just for me. And he sort of almost got down on his knees and begged me to go to to the studio. And somehow or other, I, I relented. And um, we saw them recording the White Album, but they didn't record any of it together. It was all done... You know, Paul was in one studio, et cetera, et cetera. But Jeff was just like, you know, he had the same feeling in his head that I had when I first started in, in the, as a sound engineer, that to meet people that were just your idols is just incredible. I mean, it really is. To actually be talking to them and socialise. Anyway, you know what happened with Jeff. He went on to produce um, one of their, um, one of their uh, records. And, of course, in his own right, with the LO, he, he, you know, he, he's an incredibly successful guy. Um, anyway, so Denny Cordell produced um, people like Joe Cocker and uh, lots and lots of people. And he had an assistant at the time, um, an American guy who was um, who was um, a guitarist, a bass guitarist and um, an arranger. And his name well, it still is because he's still around, fortunately. <laughs> Um, Tony Visconti. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Absolutely does, yeah. Yeah. Tony, um, Tony did a few uh, string arrangements for uh, The Move, um, Flowers in the Rain and stuff like that, which happened to be the very first record ever played on Radio 1, um, which was a you know nice thing. Mm. But Tony said to me, look, I've got this guy, he said, um, and maybe we could bring him into the studio. And he's... He's a little bit nervous, but, um, you know, he has been into the studio before. He was with a group called John's Children. I said, well, we did John's Children here at Advision. He said, oh. So anyway, this guy comes in, Mark, um, Mark Field, who actually changed his name to Mark Bolan. And, you know, we got on really well anyway. 
Um, and he did uh, he did a few of these. They cut the name down in the end, but Tyrannosaurus Rex things, which uh, the first one they did was called Deborah, which was went on forever. And uh, I thought I was going to go nuts listening to it. I mean, you have to listen to these things a hundred times, but it, it worked out quite well. It wasn't a major hit, but some of the other stuff he did, he became incredibly popular. Yeah. And then to- Tony and I got on very well. And he said, well, I'm going to bring in um, David next, uh, David Bowie. Yes, and well. uh, yeah, we, we did The Man Who Sold the World. And um, that that was good. So Tony Tony um, got into all these things, and Tony became a very successful producer. And um, then um, what happened then was um, there was a big concert going to happen in America, um, and uh, Joe Cocker was in it. And oh, I'd also, by the way, I'd also met Jimi Hendrix um, uh, as well. And so they wanted there was a team of engineers they wanted to go and help, you know, the sound. And it wasn't just me, there were loads. It was called Woodstock, which you probably heard of. Absolutely. And uh, so I was there. Um, fortunately, I, I wasn't one of them who had to sit in the field. I was treated a bit more like a VIP. Uh, in between the artists and the regular public, they, but there was people like us. So we weren't sort of, uh, we weren't the top of the totem pole, but we certainly weren't in the mud. Although, as I've said to people before, because I don't know if you know, the weather was dire. I mean, yeah. it never, and, you know, my biggest problem was making sure no, none of these people got electrocuted because of the equipment and, uh, you know, the rain. And as I said to somebody the other day, I said, you know, after 50 years, I'm still getting the mud out of my beard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was a great experience. Um, The the sound quality wasn't very good because it just couldn't be. But um, it it was great to see all those people. And so I I ended up, um, you know, doing that. And when when I came back to the UK, um, we had a a very progressive um, group come in. Uh, Yes. You heard of Yes? Absolutely, yeah. and I did their first album, and then I wasn't that keen on it, really. I, I, I mean, there were lots of other people that I wanted me. The trouble is, there's only one of me, and there's loads of them, and I can't split myself. I can't be up 24 hours a day. So um, my colleague did uh, the rest of the Yes stuff, which was incredibly successful. Um, but when Yes went on tour of America, I went there to help with the PA and the sound. Um so, yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time in America and um, doing all that stuff. Um, and, of course, um, I'm still friendly even today with Rick Wakeman. Yeah, yeah, wow. OBE. Um, I think the next step from OBE is, is a knighthood. Um, and, uh, yes, I'm still friendly with him. I mean, I, I sometimes you become, I mean, I, a lot of the people I was friendly with aren't here anymore. Of course, yeah. So, you know, the, the friendships. And, of course, the other thing is that a lot of these people, and I won't name any names, but they all became completely um, spaced out is perhaps the right word to use. And um, being spaced out means that they probably couldn't even remember who the hell I was. Um, but some of them, you know, did have a, a, a decent um, a decent lifestyle after their initial burst of fame. And my my um, boss, my original boss, this guy Roger Cameron, who was the one who originally employed me to work at Advision, 
unfortunately, um, he passed away about, I guess it was about three years ago. And I wrote to his daughter and I said, look, you know, Roger was this, he helped me. That. She said, that was a fantastic email, she said. Could you come and deliver the eulogy at Dad's funeral? Wow. Yeah, so I decided, well, not decided, it was decided for me. I mean, I am quite used to speaking. So I stood up there and there, there were all these, you know, pretty much famous people again. But when I say famous, I don't mean, you know, you'd recognize them, but they all worked in the music business, either as backing singers or whatever. People like Tony Burrows, who had, um, Tony Burrows was Edison Lighthouse and a bunch of other groups. He had about seven hit records in the charts at the same time, all with different names, but he was singing them all. And um, so, yes, yeah, so I did that. And uh, his daughter came up to me and gave me a kiss, and his son was really impressed. And, in fact, I'm having lunch with his son in a few weeks' time just to talk about the old days. And his son, believe it or not, has got nothing to do with the music business anymore, uh, whatever. He, he, he's an air conditioning engineer, which is probably quite good in this uh, in this weather. But... <laughs> Yeah, you can't get probably any further removed from, uh, I don't know, maybe you can, but it seems a bit, <laughs> to me, it seems a bit removed. Yeah. And AdVision Studios moved from Bond Street to um, another road in London, a Great Portland Street. Yeah. Uh, and so I went there and it was a massive, massive studio and we did a lot of stuff there. With um, before George Martin opened up Air Studios, he he used AdVision, and it was probably somebody like George Martin and all the things that he'd done that kind of got me really interested in the music business. Because when we were in Bond Street, uh, there was a big HMV record store there, you know, the biggest one they had in the country. Yeah, and it was in uh, it was in um, Marble Arch somewhere, and um, the, the guy who ran the store, the technical guy, not the manager, I became very friendly with him. And um, when two days before Sergeant Pepper's album came out, he said, look, come and let me bring this to the studio because our studio, we had really good speakers and everything. Have a listen to this. So um, there were four engineers, um, a guy called Martin Russian, who you may have heard of. We did a lot of stuff. Um, Eddie Offord, uh, Roger Cameron and me. And Jim, his name was Jim Foy, he put this on the turntable and we couldn't speak uh, until it came time to physically turn the record over and listen to the other side. And then we all kind of looked at each other, well, how the hell are we ever going to carry on? We can't, you know, we never do anything this good. Um, and, uh, you know, it just blew us away. And then about six weeks later, uh, we got um, a session with a group who disappeared, I think, but they were called Grapefruit. And the two producers happened to be Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Oh, so wow. they came to you know, And I'd never met them in that context before. I'd seen them at, uh, you know, when they did the uh, White Album, but they were too busy. This time they had nothing but time to talk to me. And, um, it, you know, I realised very, very quickly how much of a genius... Paul McCartney was, um, you know, I, I, you'll never meet anybody as, as iconic as him and as clever as him. And um, then um, the guy who used to work at AdVision, the, um, the maintenance engineer, he set his own sound company up and he built a studio for John Lennon 
in John Lennon's house in a place called Tittenhurst in Ascot. And um, John Lennon needed three engineers to go out there and record him uh, as and when he wanted them. And um, because he knew me, he, I was one of those engineers. And it was literally, um, get a phone call, uh, can you come out tomorrow? Well, how long for sort of thing? Oh, until, you know, until we finished. Um, no sleep. <laughs> no. And what used to happen, and this is like the um, 1960, late 1960s, I think. Um, and I mean, it can't really affect anything now because it's such a long time ago. And I think the statute of limitations is gone. I used to get there. And they used to hand me over an envelope with 250 pounds in cash, which doesn't sound like much these days, but people people used to earn that a year. Wow. Right. Um, and I would do loads of sessions. And suffice it to say that I did a lot of hit records with him as well, and Phil Spector. Um, but they were always completely and utterly, if they weren't drunk, they were stoned. And if they weren't stoned, they were drunk. And if they weren't either, they were both. It was just, you know... And everything you do, I mean, I've tried it all, and I know that if you do a session when you're stoned, and it all sounds great that night, when you listen to it the next day, what the hell have I done? It's awful. You just can't, you just, it all, everything sounds good when you're stoned. And, you know, I basically realized that this was not the way for me to work, so I stopped it. And, um, but we did a lot of stuff. And after about, um, well, I've finished all the sessions. I bought my first house for cash, no mortgage. Wow. Um, so that was because of doing that. And this was on top of the money I used to get when I worked for the studio as well. Um, and I just began to realize um, I was lucky enough, actually, that the studio, I'd got offered a job in America to go and work some studio in America uh, by a guy called Shell Talmy. Oh, yes. I've spoken with him for the podcast, yeah. Oh, right. Okay. So, Shell, again, very talented man, um, pretty much as blind as a bat, I think. Um, <laughs> couldn't really see anything, um, but just knew what to do. He is a bit like Roger Daltrey with his ears now, you know, I mean, and I don't know if Shell still does any work. But anyway, I went to my boss and I said, look, I've been offered a job in America and I'm going to take it. Um, what? Uh, uh, they said, no, no, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, we'll send you to America for three, six months. You can go anywhere you like. We'll pay all your expenses and we'll pay your salary. Wow. Um, so I thought, what? So how could I turn that down? So I went all over the States. I went to all the recording studios in, in, in well, not all of them, but a lot of studios in New York where I met a guy who used to work at Advision called Eddie Kramer who produced all the Hendrix stuff. You've yes. heard of Eddie Kramer? Absolutely, right? yeah. He and I got on very, very well, and he was South African, and um, well, still is really, and um, <laughs> he, he, you know, but he, he, he still, he never lost his South African twang. So he's got a South African twang mixed with an American accent, and he took me to um, uh, I can't remember the, the record plant where they did Electric Ladyland, and I saw Hendrix and. You know, that was just mind-boggling. When I say saw him, I heard him. That was amazing. Yeah. And uh, that was incredible. And then I went all over the States, Nashville, and um, also to uh, California. And whilst I was there, one of the records I did with a guy called Kit Lambert, who was a well-known record producer, 
um, was a, a group called, um, it wasn't a great record, but it was called The Crazy World of Arthur Brown. They had one hit record, which I'd worked on, it's called Fire. And it just happened to be number one in America as well. So when anyone ever said to me, what is it you've ever done? Because they'd never heard of me. I said, well, like, the number one record at the minute is one that I was the engineer on it. Oh, you know, so that kind of got me into a lot of places. And I saw the Wrecking Crew. You've heard of the Wrecking Crew. Absolutely, where yeah. That would knock your socks off and talk about drummers there. I mean, I've forgotten the guy's name, but wow. You know, they could just play anything. Um, yeah. did. Um, and that was amazing. So I did all that. And then I came back to the UK after six months. And um, they said, my boss said to me, right, you know, we've been paying your salary. Um, and here's all your luncheon vouchers. Because in those days, you used to get luncheon vouchers as well. And it was enough for me to go out for 50 meals. I just took everybody out three times because I couldn't <laughs> eat all those meals. Um, so that, that was good. And then then I began to realise, I mean, am I going on too long or should I I'm, I'm, I'm hanging on every word. This is fantastic. Oh, all right. Okay, so then I began to realise that um, I was about to um, get married and my working hours were weird. I mean, I'd start work at six or seven o'clock in the evening and get home about eight o'clock in the morning. Well, it's not much of a, and this is every day of the week. This isn't, you know, weekends were just another day. And so I began to realize that I couldn't keep doing this. It, 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 although I loved it, I had to do something that was, you know, more sociable hours. How could I get married and do this? I mean, it just didn't seem right to me. So I made the decision that what I would do um, was to leave the studio as a sound engineer and go away and design all the equipment. Because I knew, I mean, you know, I've got a degree in electronics. So I knew how equipment's supposed to work and what to do and how to make it. So I decided to leave and go away and spend six months designing all the stuff and then trying to sell it, which seemed to work out quite well. And I was at home all the time, so that was good news for um, my wife because, you know, she saw me all the time, which may not be good news, I don't know. But she was, um, she, you know, we, we, you know, I wasn't working all these peculiar hours. And it was good. It worked out very well. And so... I then started selling all this equipment and a lot of it I sold to America. Um, and, you know, I, I gradually um, sold my company to an American company and I thought, what am I going to do now? Um, I did miss the music business, but at the end of it all, um, you know, I think your own um, sanity has to come ahead of what you might like the most. And so I decided that I would step away slightly and um a few people still wanted me to go and do things for them and um you know so that's really and all, my friend my best friend um was a sound recording engineer and his name still is i was going to say was but it still is john maxwith who did a lot of stuff um he worked at Lansdowne Southern Music and then became a freelance and he did loads and loads of records and he he was working and I, I, you know, and I wasn't doing that anymore. And I said to him, you know, I, said, I believe that working as a recording engineer may be great and you may be the best recorder in the world, but it's a bit like being the best coal miner. Without any coal mines, what are you going to do? Yes. Yeah. The studios were closing down at a rate of knots because all these 
um, Pro Tools and God knows what. So you're ending up now with maybe five studios in the whole of London because all the others were just closing like you couldn't believe um, or the ones they'd spent fortunes on. I mean, Trident was a really well-known studio where the Beatles did some stuff. Everybody worked there. And, you know, they couldn't sustain it because people were very happy to work at home in their bedrooms or something. And um, you didn't really need to have a sort of 50-piece orchestra anymore because you could create all that using synthesizers, things like that. Yes. And yeah. I, I said, look, you know, I, I've got out of business. Um, and I, I think I, I made the right decision. Oh, no, no, I'm going to carry on. He said, oh, wait, John now, um, he's exactly the same age as me, but I won't tell you what that is. <laughs> um, but we will never see 60 again. Um, and he he works as a, a, a minicab driver. Wow. So, you know, I don't work anymore. I'm retired. Yeah. Um, but um, I, I just realised that, there was going to be some kind of sea change. And, you know, hindsight is a great thing, but I did actually kind of forecast things would... Sorry, excuse me a minute. Change. You can hear my little girls. I'm just yeah, gonna, I can hear. Yeah, I'm is just, that just one of them? It's two of them. Sounds like hundreds of them. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm just going uh, to speak to them. Give me one second. Yeah, sure. Girls. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, so... You know, I, I just kind of got out of the business, not because um, not because uh, I hated it, but because I didn't think that it was going to suit me. Um, you know, I've just had an email from somebody literally at um, 10.36. Um, Hello, Gerald. Trust all as well. I'd like to speak to you about the first Yes album, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So this <laughs> is what happened. Getting, um, you know... Uh, this sort of thing and, and it's hard because you know i don't know how old you are but um we're talking about 50 years ago of course and yeah. and you know sometimes i can't remember what i did yesterday <laughs> <laughs> you know um it gets very very hard to 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 try and um to try and think about um all these things but um it is good because it is cathartic i guess for me yeah and it hopefully it's interesting for other people to know how the origins of um all this happened because the studio i worked at um in the first studio um was was run by two technical people and they didn't seriously expect anything to happen except make a few jingles yes uh, yeah you know, all of a sudden, there were loads and loads, loads of hit records that were being churned out, and the whole reason for the studio's existence, yeah, we still did jingles, but we also used to do something else called um, what was in called in those days, uh, music to picture. The studio was big enough for a big screen projector, yeah. So somebody would come along with their. Um, Somebody would come along with with, with with film, you know, and one that in particular I remember was um, Zabriskie Point, uh, which was a very well-known film. Pink Floyd came to do it. And so they would watch the film, do, work out what they were going to do, and then play along to the relevant bits and it all be recorded by, by, by us. I should warn you here that the conversation jumps around a tiny little bit. 
mainly because we sort of finished the interview and then we carried on chatting a little bit. So I've tried to keep in as much as possible, but sometimes the subject jumps uh, very quickly. So bear that in mind. You know, I, I just kind of got out of the business, not because um, not because uh, I hated it, but because I didn't think that it was going to suit me. Um, you know, I've just had an email from somebody literally at... Um, 10.36. Um, hello, Gerald. Trust all as well. I'd like to speak to you about the first Yes album, etc., etc. Et so this is what happened. Getting, um, you know, uh, <laughs> this sort of thing. And, and it's hard because, you know, I don't know how old you are, but um, we're talking about 50 years ago. Of course. And, yeah. and, you know, sometimes I can't remember what I did yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it gets very, very hard to 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 try and um, to try and think about um, all these things, but um, it is good because it is cathartic, I guess, for me. Yeah. And it hopefully it's interesting for other people to know how the origins of um, all this happened because the studio I worked at, um, in the first studio, um, was was run by two technical people. And they didn't seriously expect anything to happen except make a few jingles. Yes. Uh, yeah. You know, all of a sudden, there were loads and loads, loads of hit records that were being churned out. And the whole reason for the studio's existence, yeah, we still did jingles, but we also used to do something else called um, what was in called in those days, uh, music to picture. The studio was big enough for a big screen projector. Yeah. So... Somebody would come along with their. Um, somebody would come along with with, with, with a film, you know. And one that in particular I remember was um, Zabriskie Point, uh, which was a very well known Pink Floyd case. And so they would watch the film, do work out what they were going to do, and then play along to the relevant bits and still be recorded by by, by us. So that's that's um, pretty much. Uh, you know, how AdVision worked and other studios didn't have those sort of facilities. But, you know, that's what we did. So that's given you, I mean, I've been on the phone now for probably about an hour. Um, That's given you a a very brief, um, uh, hopefully uh, interesting outline of how, what, why, where, and when. Um, And, you know, music is still my first love. It really is. Um, I can't imagine my life without music. and, you know, I've met some very, very interesting people because of music. And uh, I think that, you know, you have to love music to um, to be in the business. I mean, unless you're one of the managers who are only in it for the money. But, you know, money was not my um, was not my prime interest. Uh, it was it was the artistic um, enjoyment and the senses. I mean, when you look at a piece of art it's obvious to everybody what's happening. When you listen to a piece of music, it's something that's just you, right? Everybody's got a different feeling about it. And, you know, um, so I can't really stress enough how much I like or love music. And um, music still is uh, my life, but music of my era, not what, you know, people may (laughs) like Because I'm not into into uh, you know sort of like you know um, anything over about 
past about 1970. But, you know, um, that's me being, my kids think I'm some kind of uh, stick in the mud, but whatever, I, I like <laughs> I like what I like, and I'm too old now to ever change, but there we are. I was very interested in your pull tech thing because one of the ways that we got most of the sounds, especially out of our uh, Steinway grand piano, um, was using a pull tech equalizer. Oh, fantastic, yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, that was just, that was effectively the, 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 the studio sound, the pull tech and the mic, micing techniques. Um, Pultec equalizer was just amazing, absolutely amazing. And uh, we used to use um, another American company called um, Fairchild. Oh, yes. Well, yeah. Exist anymore in terms of, um, I don't think they exist in terms of uh, making that kind of thing anymore, if they exist at all. But um, then the, the rest of the equipment, in all honesty, we built. Oh, we had wow. to build, because you couldn't buy it. Um, and I built at least two mixing consoles, one for um, one for uh, AdVision. But, you know, I told you I've got a degree in electronics. Yes. I've actually now got a doctorate. But, um, and um, I built one for Richard Branson um, <laughs> at the Manor Studios. Um, and uh, I, you, because I built it, I don't know if it worked, I recorded tubular bells on it. Wow. So, yeah, but that's another story at some point but anyway i think you've got probably more than enough uh, rabbiting on from me so <laughs> i'll i'll go and have a rest now rest my brain and uh, hopefully you can you can use some of that stuff oh absolutely this is it's been fantastic i've i honestly i've loved listening to you to telling me all those stories it's just brilliant thank you that's a pleasure uh, listen i And there we have it, the second part of my conversation with Gerald Chevin. I probably should have warned you in the uh, introduction that my children make a brief appearance during this episode, and I I, I don't know, I thought it was quite funny to leave a little bit of it in. I'd stopped um, when I told them off, and I told them off very politely, um, but you don't need to hear me telling off, not telling off, asking my children very politely to not be in the room when I'm speaking to people. <laughs> So there we go, an insight into uh, my home life. Anyway, I really do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gerald. As I say, I have a third part of that that will be coming out as a special episode, maybe in a, in a couple of months' time. Um, next episode will not be the Ron Ryan one just yet. It's likely to be an episode with a friend of mine called Andy Pickering, who is very much into analog recording, and he's a piano player. Um, and recently came to my studio and we did a session um, recording one of his songs straight to his four-track machine um, with drums, bass and guitar. I thought it would be an interesting conversation to for me and him to discuss the sort of pros and cons and sort of pitfalls or whatever of uh, having kind of dipping your toe in the analog world as a relatively young <laughs> I mean in our 30s musician you know essentially we grew up with um digital you know that's how we came through and then we've started this to discover the brilliance of analog and um this is generally a conversation about how uh, we've developed in the analog world so I thought that would be interesting for anybody who's a home studio studio enthusiast or anybody that's interested in sort of analog recording 
um, which is uh, kind of what most of this podcast is about. Anyway, that just leaves me to say a big thank you to Joe Kane and David Henshaw for the music and the artwork they supply for this podcast. I hope you all have a fantastic week and I will be back next Tuesday. Goodbye. (laughs)